the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, I just want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck a month there to help support the show or leave us a nice review on iTunes. Either would be great. We got some haters on the iTunes, so we are very happy to bring you guys our friend Jared Miller-Price. Jared completed a thesis on Lacan and Julian of Norwich, and we're going to be looking at Seminar XX today. And I think what the what's the title? It's like... Encore! The Encore. Limits of Love and Knowledge yeah. on Feminine That's Sexuality. Right. It's got like a billion titles. Yeah, yeah. you know that he just had like the best time sitting down and writing that bullshit too. So. Encore, which means like, hey, you haven't made me come yet. So, Jared, we usually like to start out with a, uh, a philosophical origin story. So if you have yeah. maybe like a an anecdote or story about, you know, maybe something that kind of like gripped you. And then perhaps even specific to Lacan, et cetera, that might be it. Or, yeah. the, or the mystics like Julian of Norwich. Yeah, there yeah definitely. Kind of yeah, I can give you a little uh, little background. Kind of uh, arrived at philosophy in a lot of roundabout ways. I actually started out by going to a Bible school of all places, okay. a very, very conservative Bible school. And uh, within that training, I had become pretty disillusioned with a good amount of the scholarship that I was interacting with within biblical studies. And so, you know, that kind of turned me into higher criticism. And through higher criticism, obviously, some of the influence of German philosophy on the higher critics. And that was kind of like a detour. And then I kind of decided, I don't really fucking care about biblical hermeneutics. I think I'm going to turn my attention to theology. Because at the time, I was still very much rooted in that. And I think what was really appealing to me about theology was that it was still within like that faith tradition that I was a part of at the time, you know, and there was some room to start integrating some of the philosophical thought that I started to be pretty interested in. And so along the way, I ended up having a professor who introduced me to the work of René Girard. So that's kind of like my first foray into French thought more than anything. Yeah, so I got some introduction into René Girard and by extension, I think I read Violence in the Sacred First or uh, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. But in one of those works, he makes pretty heavy reference to Claude Lévi-Strauss and to Sigmund Freud. So that was kind of when I was Freud-filled, if you will. I became pretty intensely interested in how Girard thought through his idea of mimesis and sacrifice. And I became really interested in wanting to explore that too and how he talked about Freud and like the idea of the totem. And it was turning toward Freud that I kind of just started to spill over the the seams, if you will. And around that time, I became pretty influenced and interested in reading uh, Zizek. So Zizek was probably some of like the first 
through like philosophical work that I sat down to really engage with. And as you can imagine, that led me to reading Jacques Lacan. So that's kind of like the, the initial entrance into the world of thinking through Lacan and really subsequently becoming interested in French philosophy as a whole and the history of psychoanalysis and what have you. As regards the mystics, that same teacher that introduced me to Girard had us, it was a, it was actually a Britlet class. So my introduction to it was not in a theology class. It was in a literary studies class. And we appreciate that. We appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we were reading, oh, what did we go through? We went through Beowulf and we went through the Tempest and then- Chaucer, maybe. Yeah, a little bit of Chaucer. And yep. then at the end of the semester, my professor said, we, we need to read Revelation of Divine Love. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. And so that was my, <laughs> my first introduction into reading Julian and Norwich. And that became really, that just like really stuck with me, not only for like the theological reasons at the time, but there was something about how she thought and the way that she articulated her, especially her theology of sin, that was really interesting to me. And I think it like stirred with like these feelings I was already having about what I could only call like a crisis in faith at the time, you know, and like right. the eventual disillusion of that thing. So for better or worse, I just couldn't put it down. I just kept going back and back and back. And I think reading that in tandem and getting really into Lacan, it just became kind of like a natural thing for me eventually to conduct my reading of them together for my thesis work. So I don't do a ton of reading in the mystics as a whole since then. Unfortunately, my education did not give me the good pleasures of getting to read a lot of the great European mystics. A little bit Christian goes a long way though, right? It does. It sure does. And you know, like... I won't beat around the bush or bullshit with anybody, you know, like, though I don't consider myself a particularly deeply religious person anymore, there's still something about St. Julian that's very drawing to me. Whatever she has to say about God is the most appealing thing to me. What was it that, uh, is it Merton, Thomas Merton, who said like he wouldn't trade, he wouldn't trade all of Thomas Aquinas for a little bit of, of Julian Norwich. He says he, he has some quote that's in the, the preface to one of the editions of the Julian Norwich he says yeah, something I, like he wouldn't trade some he would maybe maybe it was St. John on the cross. He wouldn't trade this one mystic for a, a bit of Julian. I forget yeah. how he put it. But yeah, I also wanted to ask you just off the top of my head, because it's been stuck in my head, my brain, mm -hmm. this notion about sin as behoovely, because I wish yeah. we still had that yeah. word. I wish we could still say behoovely. In any case, I'll let you finish your, your spiel. I'm just that's actually kind of a great segue and why I thought some of it was pretty interesting, especially I guess to a good connection in seminar 20 is uh, what was really like struck me about Julian's use of behoovely or behoovely, however we want to pronounce it, you know, right. I mean, it can mean a lot of things kind of at its basis. It can often mean necessity necessary, but it can also mean fitting. It carries that kind of connotation of like, it's just so it's a matter of fact, it's fitting, you know, like it makes sense. We all fall short of the glory of God, et cetera, right? So we're all... We're, we're... Yeah, and I think that there's an even deeper sense within that, though, too, because I think what mm -hmm. was really standout for me in reading Julian was the way that she then applies that same exact concept to her theology of God. You know, she in one of her visions, she has this vision of the servant who runs headlong to do the master's will mm -hmm. and ends up falling. And... She makes note that that is that's Christ that falls, Ooh. running headlong. There's quite a lot of implication to the idea of Christ falling, not just into Mary's womb, as she'll say, but also partic participates in humanity in that way, right? I definitely read in a little bit more of a, uh, for lack of a better word, heterodox 
way than necessarily how maybe a more conservative standardized Christian reading would have it. But that sort of idea really stuck out to me when reading Lacan. And in Seminar 20, there's the reference to the jouissance that is at fault. This sort of like uh, jouissance that falls, comes up short. I also think one thing that is interesting about Lacan is he's not afraid to discuss theology loosely or even God in particular. Mm -hmm. A lot of times associating quote-unquote God with either the other or the subject supposed to know, right? That God's omniscience. And so when he says something about how the other or God is, one can no longer hate God if he knows nothing in in particular, right? So yeah, especially if you find out that God is the most ignorant of all. (laughs) Right, exactly. And this is stuff that Cooper and I have talked about with respect to Schreber's God, right? Who doesn't really know the living, he only knows the dead. But also with Lorenzo Chiesa, who makes a whole kind of uh, thing about radical atheism, you know, based on this quote unquote, stupid God or this God that that doesn't know what he's doing. It's only insofar as sort of God is in control or aware or knows everything that we can sort of blame God for the failures and the fallings of existence, so so to speak. So it's like, that wasn't a question. We can posit, we can posit like zero, for example, as this, as this placeholder. I want to say that Lacan sort of views he views this as we need this transcendental signifier mm-hmm. to provide the nodding of of all the the registers of the real the symbolic mm-hmm. the imaginary in order to structure our social we have to have some type of ground like Schillingian grounding for being is to have a system of writing or marking and then we take that and we can we can do stuff with it. And this is maybe where the link to the very end of the yeah. seminar with regard yeah, um, to the production of knowledge and science and the rat in the maze, right? What he talks about how the rat is sort of, what is it doing? It's producing signifiers by this process of repetition. Like it goes through the maze. It learns somehow. How does it learn? It learns by being immersed in being or something. I, I don't know. I'm just, this is totally... <laughs> talking out of my ass but i think no, it might fine. make sense but go, go ahead, ahead jerry. Uh, jerry sorry i think this is pretty good i really like that kind of like the linchpin especially too if we want to think about the signifier as you're mentioning and at any point you want to like stop me you were cutting out a little bit for me which is okay it's just my connection but production of the signifier is very interesting and just like to kind of talk about that point more I think what's very important in lacan and as you mentioned it's not this transcendental thing in and of itself I can kind of recapitulate what I was yeah, trying to, what I was yeah, trying that'd to, be helpful. Thank you. What I, I was trying to kind of articulate Lacan's, I hate to say it like sort of ontological system because I know that's not right, but he recognizes the need to have this transcendental signifier like a god or an unmoved mover that provides the not the quilting point for we need a sort of ground, right, to build upon. We needed a stable suture point on which to build a structure. Otherwise, we have chaos. And so the discourse between the law, enjoyment, and the creation of knowledge, which are the three primary you know, focuses of the seminar itself, mm-hmm. are all definitely knotted together. He doesn't really hammer home that link, but yeah. you can see this in the discussion at the very end of the rat, right? The rat is, mm-hmm. what is the rat doing? It's being placed in the maze. So 
Repetition is involved every time it iterates through the maze. He says that it's creating like a a sign or a signifier in so Mm -hmm. doing. And what that is, it's like a positive feedback loop. That's what I think the signifier or the sign, like the phallus, the one price to rule them all. Like if you want to transfer this to economics, if all prices are derivative in the way that all signifiers are derivative, then we have to have one that is not. It doesn't matter yeah. what it is, really. Like it can it's be true. virtual, it could be zero, but it just we need a placeholder. We need a placeholder, yeah. a grounding and, to build from, I think. And maybe that yeah, and I, is the ultimate mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. And I think what like Lacan does a really good job of pointing out with that too, you know, is it's happenstantial that the signifier ends up taking that transcendental position, right? Like he he definitely attacks that it's like inherently necessary that it be so while also okay. recognizing that it is there to hold all these things together. And specifically what I'm thinking about here too is what he will point to in one of the signifiers amongst most, but especially the connection to the phallus to be, right? And he kind of notes, unless someone had isolated it to be this linchpin of discourse, it would just be buried. And he notes that when he talks about it is what it is. If uh, you remember that portion in... I can't remember what session it's in, but that whole like barrage of signifiers is just kind of like idiotic in and of itself, if you will. It is what it is, doesn't have anything particularly stand out about it. It is what it is. Yeah, that's what, yeah, it is what the it is. Jacobson, the Jacobson. Uh, yeah, yes. And then, so, but then yeah. he makes this point like, oh, but someone, somewhere, someone, whoever, whatever the fuck it is along the way, isolates and highlights, right? To be, it yes. is what it is. And I think that's like a really important thing when thinking about like that signifier that you're bringing up, Coop, the like linchpin that holds everything together, right? As a suture, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think even not just like a, not just even like as a suture or a linchpin, but even as like a crutch, right? Right. Yeah. It's like the thing to fall back on, you know? Exactly. To like hold you up. And I think like Zupan Cheech actually brings that up pretty well in What is Sex? There's kind of like the idea about man is a man out of belief or something like that. Yes, and woman, believe, and believe in a non-castration, right? Yeah, exactly, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, you kind of even get the whole idea, you know, like, the phallus is just a big old kickstand. It props up this thing that's actually very contingent in and of itself. And I think Lacan even shows that, you know, with the knots. Not to get too far off the field, what I think he'll bring up in the later seminar, like Seminar 23, and the synthome, right? This thing that actually helps bind all those rather fragile complexities together, if any of that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Because that goes to how he was talking about, I think one of the more fascinating discussions about the nodding is how he was going through. I mean, I guess first to back up, the nodding, I think, is brilliant in that it is interrogating the social link and thinking the social link. And how do we, one of the interesting parts about that was cutting one knot without piercing the other two rings or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like perhaps there's three rings that are sutured by one knot. And by cutting a single rope, you could free the other two without destroying them. And I think that the implications of that, like it sounds stupid and it sounds banal, but I mean, I think it goes to a far bigger, the implications are huge to that alone. Not to get like too far off the field, but I think obviously that's what he's going to gesture toward more so and develop a lot more in the seminar 23 on Joyce, you know, and well, even more so, is there another way to actually keep those other two rings Altogether, uh, when yeah, yeah, a third of them is cut, right? 
which is what he'll bring up with, with like the synthome. So I think that's pretty, pretty fascinating for sure. Nice, nice. That is good. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because I'm thinking about how do we break the, I don't know if you can maybe even think about the discourses, right? What unifies all four or five discourses, if you want to bring in the capitalist mm-hmm. discourse, is the, is like jouissance, right? There's yep. only one discourse, the discourse of jouissance. So the law, knowledge, sex, love are all downstream of jouissance, so to speak. Yeah. Like different like manifestations yeah. of maybe the one substance of jouissance, if we want to get a little bit speculative with shit like that. What's kind of at the base of it all? It's like libido all the way down, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I think you're right on. Could jouissance be the one substance that everything, all the other structures lean upon is the discourse of jouissance? I think that's a perfectly fine and actually like helpful reading. Just in thinking back to that point on like the kickstand, you know, or yeah, the yeah, crutch. Yeah. Exactly. Is like, obviously, the discourse on jouissance with the phallic jouissance is leaning back against that right to hold everything back up. Clearly, Lacan is pointing to like how deeply entrenched that jouissance right. is. And I think it's important, ethically, however the hell you want to state it, what he's trying to imply is that is not the only jouissance. It certainly erected itself as the jouissance, but it's not the only jouissance. This was what I was kind of talking about, the virtuality of something like zero, or even you could posit the phallus itself, or like castration revolves around this, where it's um, shit. I lost my train of thought. Just to jump in and let you find that, when you were talking about the discourse of, of jouissance, I was thinking that that might particularly be the role of the analyst discourse. And the mm-hmm. other discourses might not necessarily be on or of jouissance directly, but that with the, with the advent of the analyst discourse, we're able to sort of subvert or... Was Lacan, he calls Marxism a gospel. And by that, he means, yep. he means like yeah. the, the good news. Yes, exactly. The, uh, the e- evangelist part. Yeah. Is it necessarily about some sort of, I mean, is it necessarily just an eschatological vision, which it can be in certain uh-huh. cases, but it is about how it subverts and undermines all other discourse. Kind of like, this is what I was thinking about with, Badu's little book on Paul when uh-huh. he's saying Paul isn't speaking to the Greek philosophers in terms of truth. He isn't speaking to the Jewish hermeneutes in terms of sort of in terms of a reading, a new type of reading or a, a reading that would under that would uncover some sort of knowledge within a text. He's producing this discourse of folly, this kind of mad discourse that can't be stupidity. It's stupidity, like Lacan talks about it, right? And so if the analyst discourse, if the agent of the analyst discourse in that top left, which could be, you know, know, if you want to, in our YouTube video, you could have like the the analyst discourse pulled up. But if the top left is object A, right? The the object cause of desire, which has a relation to, you know, jouissance, and it's interrogating the split subject, right? The contradictory Uh, subject of the... um, what the conscious and conscious split, so to speak, and the yep. truth of the discourse. No, sorry, not the truth. The product in the bottom right is master signifiers. Knowledge. Yeah, master signifier rather. Sorry, yeah. Right. No, I mean, but that's. I guess knowledge would be the would be S two would be the bare the, the truth what, of it. Yeah, the, the swarm or barrage of signifiers. Yep. What does he call it? The battery of signifiers. Yeah, the battery of signifiers. He'll also kind of use the swarm idea too. The swarm, of, yeah, like, which is in the rat yeah. and maze part. Yeah. So. 
I guess that's my whole point of bringing this out and just to visualize it is if the agent, so to speak, is not necessarily the analyst or even the analyzan, but some sort of what interplay of transference, this whole, you know, this. Yeah. The, the, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. It makes sense because uh, like the analyst is the, they're kind of the prop for the analyzand in mm-hmm. a sense. Yeah, right? absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. They come in to occupy that. That the position, the virtual position of mastery, and I think maybe that's what I yep. was trying to say is okay. There's a virtual position of mastery, but that position of mastery is contingent. So phallic jouissance or castration arising uh-huh. as a regime is a fully contingent structure, yep. and there could 100%. be other. There can be other values that can sit in the virtual position of the transcendental mm-hmm. phallus yep. or whatever. Which mm-hmm. I think is even a suture point with. Deleuze with the virtual and actual distinction uh-huh. or something like that, but we can yeah table that for later. So this is really good stuff too, um, and just kind of like thinking more on like this discourse of jouissance, right? And kind of pointing to the analyst discourse as that. Yeah, I think it's what what's really important in pointing that out. You, you know, as object awe as the agent, right? It's really there, and I think why it, I think you're like spot on with it is it's like it's in the analyst course where it speaks, which is a very popular Lacanian phrase, right? It speaks, whereas like in these in the other discourses there, it, the unconscious is not, is not actually able to speak and interrogate. Right. So I think that that's really quite interesting. And Lacan is really starting to like, is wanting to take seriously. Well, what are the implications of the unconscious speaking? What does that mean in relation to the concept of knowledge? What does that mean in relation to the concept of the master or how does the analyst discourse act as a other side to psychoanalysis, right? I mean, how does the analyst discourse act as the other side of the master's discourse, right? Yeah, it's it's 180 um, reversed because in the master's discourse, jouissance is in the bottom right, which means that is the surplus enjoyment, the surplus value that the slave, the yep. worker is producing. Whereas in the analyst discourse, what is being produced are these new master signifiers, or as you called it, it's kind of like the first rule, right, of psychoanalysis, where the analysand is supposed to say anything, not everything, not say at all, uh-huh. which is impossible yes. as Lacan says, yes. but say anything which is more or less stupidity, which is parapraxies, which are slips yep. of the tongue, you know, holes in discourse, the gaps. Mm-hmm. And so the say anything law is what is being produced. And that I think too, is related back to what Coop brought up earlier about the nodding, that through the work, the working through of the uh, analyst discourse, there's an ability to produce these new stupidities, these new yep. master signifiers, and knot them together uh-huh. to push or reorient the symptom, if you will. Yeah, right. Yes, yeah. Yes. Supan Sheech points that out really well in Ethics of the Real. I don't mm-hmm. know if either of you had the chance to read that. But she has like that great section kind of near the end of the book. And it might even be too in What is Sex, but I wouldn't, whole, I wouldn't doubt sort it. Of, yeah. The whole sort of idea of like, and I think we're like on the right track. Lacan is proposing like that there needs to be a new signifier, right? Y- yeah. The point of it being though is one that's no longer, oh, I mean, to kind of go back to an earlier seminar, one that is no longer a semblant, like semblance yes. of Ooh, something call. else, right? Because that's what he's to the real or something like yep, that, right? Exactly. You know, and so like when Zupan Cheech is talking about, well, it is about the establishment of a new signifier. What Lacan is getting at there is it's not just like replacing it with any old signifier, which is kind of a big point that he's trying to point out in his concept of feminine jouissance anyways. It's like, why is the sexual relationship not possible? There is no one-to-one correspondence of another signifier. Yeah, uh, it's all whereas, relational. Like, phi, yeah, whereas phi stands in for phallus, we can't find omega. There's not like a, like a 
quote woman counterpoint to the masculine master signifier, right? If you will, without getting too off track, I think like what Guattari especially ends up seeing as like a benefit in Lacan is, and through like the schizophrenizing of the signifier as well, is that there is the possibility for something different. Lacan's not proposing like reorient your view of the family, reintegrate yourself into society with a better view on Oedipus or something like that. But experiment and find out, right? Fuck around and find out what is the new thing. (laughs) I think you're definitely right there. And I think that that's why, I mean, Bruce Fink's really good on this when he talks about the analyst discourse as provoking what is called negative transference, right? It's Mm -hmm. this in elaborating the new stupidities and master signifiers in order to rework the barrier, the the battery of signifiers and as the truth of the discourse, there is a negative transference on the part of the analysand, the patient, insofar as there, it seems as though the analyst takes on the object cause of desire. Uh-huh. The, the analyst shows up in the dreams, seems to be, you know, I had this dream because I knew I was coming to see you, you know, that kind of shit. And Fink's point is that a lot of that Freud is kind of elaborating, this is the battlefield. This is the battle between the analyst and the analyzan, and that you have to stick with that negative transference, that struggle, yeah. where, wherein the, the patient is starting to, whether it be aggressive or accusatory or whatever, towards the, the analyst. A lot of different types of therapy might want to drop it there. And oh, say, absolutely. Maybe, maybe you need a new therapist. Maybe you need a new mode because you're taking... This is getting too charged. And I think that for Freud and Lacan, on the contrary, that's where the work actually happens, where there is this intensified transference in the... Yeah, so you yeah, have I to agree. Tarry I, with that. That's to become like the, uh, the stumbling stone in the rock of offense, you know, like I think that to use like a, a biblical metaphor, but I, I think that's right. You know, it is like this war zone, if you will, right? And it's the business of working... Working through the working through thing really is a battlefield, right? Like it takes the negativity of the whole enterprise seriously and doesn't reduce therapeutics to a merely positive enterprise. You know, strengthening of the ego, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, obviously, like Lacan is consistently seeking to dunk on all throughout his career, right? Is Freud's papers on technique, the first two seminars, right? And a very big confrontation with ego psychology. And this specifically like, Anna Freud. You want to talk about strengthening of the ego? Like that is not what we're in the business of doing. By the time he reaches seminar four, the big seminar on the Kleinian school of object relations, it's not merely about finding the right objects to integrate. If only it uh, were so easy, right? Yeah. If, if only yeah. it were so easy, then I think the world would be a, a much more homo- yeah. harmonious place. And this is kind of what I was talking to with Coop the other day about Lacan is pointing out it's not so easy. There isn't this sort of pre-established harmony between language and the world or uh-huh. between the sexes, right? This is kind of what he means. And again, we have to bring it up, this formula, there is no sexual relationship. It is this fact that there is no sort of harmony between the individual and society such that you precisely strengthen the ego and then say, okay, you're ready to go back into the, the grind set. You're strong enough now. Definitely to connect that to some of like what Lacan is doing in the seminar, right, is what does the sexualization presuppose? That there's the possibility of the one, right? Yep. And then Lacan makes this explicit reference to the one is only like a mirage of the one that we presuppose ourselves to be. And, you know, he's like, 
if at the very foundations, I don't even know myself or can't know myself or whatever it might be. What makes you think that this sort of utopic harmony is even achievable? Or maybe not even like the right direction to go there, but we shouldn't even presuppose that there's like harmony underneath everything. You know, so he's like attacking biologism, for lack of a better word. I mean, he's attacking a lot of different things that presuppose this sort of like harmonious balance amongst all things, right? And today you might say he would be against something like identity politics. Absolutely. Because identity Um, politics already presupposes some sort of stable ground, some sort of homologous. I mean, it it presupposes being. There you go. Which I think think Lacan is actually very much confronting in this seminar, right? I love how he talks about all being is an extension of a discourse. And then he points to the master's discourse, which we can also pronounce. Maitre. Yeah, maitre. My um, being. My being, exactly. Coop, you were going to say something? Sorry, Jared, just... Oh, no, uh, that's okay. Well, I was going to (laughs) say capitalism as well, because I think it relies on this transcendental price, like one price... 100%, yep. ...to rule them all, like, because... Mm -hmm. and And that's tied to the social link, but also desire. I'm going to try to predict what you want. The reason that it's difficult is because what you want is not situated outside of a relation on its own. It's not a transcendental. It's not the exclusion that makes the rule. What you want is all predicated on what, what you think that other people want in the same way that signifiers, you can go on this endless loop of signification. You're never going to, you go to the dictionary, right? The classic example, mm-hmm. you're going to look up words, keep looking up those words for eternity. Same thing. It's like, you're never going to find a price or something within the relation that is outside of it. Obvious logic, but it seems like counterintuitive, I think, in a way. This is a great, great point too, with what I think Lacan is doing with making reference back to Seminar 7, his seminar on ethics, and the things that he'll bring up throughout here too, you know, the law, but then he'll also bring back up Bentham and utilitarianism. He'll bring up the Kantianism of Said, and then he'll also bring back Aristotle, which are the three people that he sort of directs his criticism of in Seminar 7. But this very thing that he's like attacking, right, that there's these sort of goods outside of our social reality, right? Outside of our bonds that we can kind of just like top down, pull down and assume that it's the good for everybody, for example. And what we find is that it's death for some, it's destruction for some, right? And I think like what that's really kind of pointing to is this sort of positivized notion of culture and society, right? We all have the same good and we all agree upon it and we all want it. And I think Lacan's very much in the business of saying psychoanalysis does not believe that. It shouldn't believe it, at least, that there's like a unifying inherent good that we all strive for. Jouisant's desire is far too complicated for us to rest on that assumption. I think, you know, at this point, I know we could jump anywhere. And Coop, I know you've got your document to go by. I just want to make sure we, I'm sure that at some point we were going to talk about this anyway, but we probably should look at or discuss a little bit about the famous diagram we have to say something about oh uh, are you talking about, about the one with like, about um, sexuation right we, yeah we, yeah yeah we should probably and you can pull it up Coop. that that's great la femme on one side right and uh we have the two sides and a lot of times in writing about this you'll see people saying man and woman but obviously uh-huh. always qualifying 
it's either the masculine position, feminine yep. position, or the masculine structure, feminine structure. You'll see this this way of talking about it, which has, as we've already kind of pointed out, nothing to do with biology, nothing to do with chromosomes, which is still with us in our fucking yeah. discourse and our yeah. legal. There's a law being passed in North Dakota about having to use pronouns that are based in your chromosomal structure. So we, <laughs> yeah. we still Something have stupid. this. We Jesus still have this Christ. fucking shit with us. And so Lacan is not talking about man and woman based on some sort of biological reality. Yeah, some sort of essentialism. Some, it, um, it's not at all essentialist, yeah. exactly. So that's one of actually my biggest pet peeves. Oh, go on. That, what's, what's your biggest pet peeve? Well, I'm saying like this is one of my biggest pet peeves for many people that engage with Lacan's work in like, I would say a not very rigorous way to read or look at something like this, right? And automatically assume what he's talking about is essentialized gender or like these fixed states of what a biological male is or what a biological female is. It's not in our genes, like uh, chromosomally, but it's also not in our genes as in our pants, right? It's not about (laughs) that. Um, Yeah, that's good. But go on, Jared. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. It's just like what he's really trying to go at, in my opinion, with this whole like with like the whole idea around sexuation is that and he even says explicitly, we know that there are phallic women in the same way that we can also then presuppose just to stick with the words he's using, not whole men. In this way, I think he's more interested in like ethical or social positions. Again, I don't know the best word to use it. I'm kind of hesitant to use subject positions, but right. I I get that. There's two regimes, if you will, right? And I think he's looking at those sorts of ideas. There is a regime that we can call masculine, and it revolves around this sort of masculine exception, right? There's at least one for which the phallic function cannot be written. But there's also a whole social existence, a whole social bond, a whole sociality, whatever, that is not beholden to that and if central I may, point. Sorry, if, if, I, if I may, just, you know, whenever Coop and I talk about Freud... Usually it comes up that I bring up his uh, notion that he gets from Fleece about constitutive bisexuality, wherein we're not talking about sexual orientation here, but the fact that any individual kind of has a tendency maybe to identify, if you will, with one or the, or the other, right? Like I may more identify more in my fantasy, in my everyday yeah, yeah. waking hours as in the masculine position, but at the same time, there is always this ability to, again, to use that loaded term, subjectivate in a feminine position or to Uh become, as Freud would say, passive towards another man. So an individual doesn't necessarily have to coincide with one position or the other at all times. There is, again, to use kind of uh, interpolation or hailing, there is an ability to take up a masculine or feminine position for any individual. Be that as it may, yes, you you started reading the diagram. We have the... Mm -hmm. We have kind of the idea of the primordial father in Freud's mythology, right? That hoards all the women, if you will. So he's not quote unquote castrated or submitted to the phallic function, which I think is more or less equivalent. He has this direct unmediated access to jouissance and he hoards all of it. He hoards the... What's the phallic function? Can we discuss that? Because I'm not clear. That, that's, I think that's really important. for The phallic function, as far as I read it, is submitted to castration, which as we know with Freud, that is the threat of castration to the male member, right? Literally kind of the penis. He takes it a little too literally sometimes. Mm, right. With Lacan, yeah, it yeah. becomes a part of the symbolic, right? Our entrance into language and symbolic, the, yeah. the kind of constitutive negativity of 
at the core of our being, yeah. if you will. And yeah, and the forfeiture castration and sac yeah, the forfeiture and the relinquishing sacrifice of jouissance as a entrance payment into that symbolic. Okay, yeah. so does that make good. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think here what I'm hearing is in order to enter into the social, we give up jouissance. We give up an aspect of our jouissance for survival. This is how the stable social link is generated. Yeah. Because it goes to you... it goes to time preferences and it goes to satisfaction, right? Because we have to modulate desire, repression, like all of these things are sort of very they vacillate on these different axes mm -hmm. and we have to like manage them in a way in which like there's a minimum amount of social repression that still yep. constitutes a link because otherwise what happens is if these i'll say it in freud's way because i think it's simpler at least for us to get into this diagram mm -hmm. you know if you have the primordial father who hoards all the women who hoards all the sons, who has the direct unmediated access to jouissance to enjoyment the sons rise up and kill him right right and then the sons make a pack realize they internalize the super ego and shame and everything yeah blah 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 they internalize all that and they make an agreement not to hoard the women right not to reconstitute mm -hmm. the thing that they rose against but also to all these other different prohibitions which involve you know prohibitions against incest which involve yep. prohibitions against murder etc so you're right Coop. it is about entering the social bond the social pact and that's why they kind of in the internalization, as Jared just said, in the internalization of guilt, shame, et cetera, that is the kind of symptomatic phenomenon that is their castration, their their acknowledgement. So, you know, yeah, there is at least one ex, that's the primordial father, but he's been murdered in some prior, you know, prehistorical time. You know, that's why the next part is all ex are castrated. All ex yep. have to give up that unmediated access. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, because that's the birth yeah. of the social link, right? Because yes. before it, the father or the primal father, would he kill all the sons because of the threat of Oedipus? The sons learn Oedipus from the father. So the father is the one who sees the son as the threat. So the primal father is right. just like, uh, you know, fucking Zeus, right? He, Kronos. He, is, Kronos. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Kronos. Same, same shit. Yeah, Kronos was the one eating the sons because of the yep. oracle telling him that a child would uh, we'll rise up and him. kill him. If we kill all of our children, we can't have a society, if that makes sense. Like if I hoard all, if I kill yeah. all of my sons. Well, right then we can't have a social to begin with. So I think that's just to hammer that to make the implications of that more clear, yeah. I suppose. Like and and like, larger the, level. yeah. And tied to that too, is like, obviously the introduction of the law, which Taylor was already bringing up the prohibitions on incest or what have you. And Lacan brings up usufruction, the laws on inheritance. Oh yeah. Usufruct, which yeah. is the, yeah, you can the linking of enjoyment and use, right? Yeah. You can enjoy up to a point. Yes. Um, but do not enjoy over that point. Yeah, that's that's um, a good that that is yeah. that is great. Yeah, right. I mean, if you think about this, kind of goes back to my point because I was <laughs> I think I was really trying to draw this back to like the libidinal band as a model of the social. If everyone's time preferences are based on what is my immediate satisfaction, like the shortest path to satisfaction, we have to mitigate that tendency to have a mm -hmm. social link. And again, this is why I'm saying we're it's this pole of trying to find the right, what's the right Goldilocks zone of repression. I actually kind of think about in, I think it's in, it might appear in Anti-Oedipus, but for sure in A Thousand Plateaus, like I'm thinking of 
you know, it's kind of the sweet spot. Obviously, like they're proposing like the sweet spot is the body without organs in a certain sense. And where can where jouissance or desire or whatever has run to a place where there can no longer be a link is kind of like the catatonic body without organs. Does right, that sound right. kind okay. of correct? Yeah, you know, yeah. like like I'm the following. one that's too stupid. Yeah. There's not even like a possibility for any sort of collective enunciation at that point. I like what we're getting at, you know, and I think why Lacan is right to highlight it, as we mentioned earlier, it is helpful to have some sort of knitting point or point that can hold a, hold a group together, right? And like why he wants the idea of the new signifier and not mm-hmm. a reconstitution of the old one. Because if we're like paying attention to him, right, the signified is the impression or the after effect of the signifier. The meaning effect, yeah. Yeah, right. With that new signifier, there's a whole new, we could call it social link, right, within the signified a new sort of impression, but it like needs that sort of unity, something to like go back together yeah. uh, toward, right? Because like exactly like the Schillingian grounding kind of ideas, yeah, go to, but I don't know. Because he's obviously like, and I think we should be, and uh, maybe like a thing in some of Nick Land's work throughout Fang's Numina, just simply go to the outside, forego all whatever bonds there might be, because there you'll find whatever his notion of freedom is, and we can also see how well that turned out for him. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, Zizek talks about this with uh, the re-nodding via the new master signifiers that you're talking about, the re-nodding of the battery of signifiers that constitute our sort of fantasy world, our symptomatic being. If it's undone too quickly, then there's chaos, there's psychosis, there's a kind of a breakdown, as Deleuze and Guattari might call it, rather than a breakthrough. So mm-hmm. there has to be a, a new re-nodding. It's not, and it's not enough to, as you said, just sort of as though there were some unproblematic way of unnodding our sort of symptomatic constitutive uh, our, our, <laughs> yeah, our symptomatic constitution thank you don't deterritorialize too fast you that's know? right exactly yeah. right yeah. so ah, yeah exactly so we have there is at least one x which we just talked about the primordial father quote unquote which is which also i think is another way of what Lacan talks about it's not the same thing but i think it's related in terms of what he calls the feminine myth of Don Juan, right? Who, instead of having it all at once, which would be the primordial father, it's serial, right? It's one by one, which is why on the right-hand side, which we'll get to in a second, is not all, not whole. But again, you have the primordial father that is not castrated or submitted to the phallic function. And then you Uh have, and then as a consequence of that, as we've been talking about, you have all X are submitted to the phallic function or all X are are quote unquote castrated, which is why in the bottom half, bottom left half, you have the bard S, the bard subject, which is the sort of, if you will, the contradictory, uh, yeah, the split subject. antagonism, the split subject, the antagonism of the unconscious and the conscious. Yep. And that's also, I think, why on the bottom left hand side, man, quote unquote, the masculine position is as split subject as barred subject is the fact that there is even though kind of like disavowal even though we know very well that we are castrated there's still this fantasy of a primordial father or of quote unquote an alpha male which is why i, I brought up with yes, Coop yes last night i brought up with coop last night that you know if don juan's the feminine myth the masculine myth is the andrew tate figure who yeah. is who is the the alpha male? The alpha a male, a harem, a harem. Yeah, yep. right. The, the alpha male. That's the male fantasy. Is the harem. the male fan, or or, yep. or or just the or just the male fantasy of an alpha, right? Of yep. quote unquote being 
alpha or sigma or whatever. The yeah, fuck because type. because we lack, we have to yep. prop ourselves up by a figure that does not lack. Yes, yeah, exactly. Because, because we are weak. Because we are weak and subject to castration. Because That's we good. rely on others through the social link, through language. We are weak, and therefore we must. We have to. Yeah. We, we fantasize to, the. We have the, to yes. have a now. The important aspect, I think, that what happens is like this is the good thing where Guattari wants to inject the death drive into institutions because what happens seemingly mm. is these institutions ossify and become to be perceived as natural. Um, yes, like the link. That's like, given. Transcendental given. Yeah. The relationship yeah. between the signifier and the signa what signified gets hardened, sort of in the social, and it's perceived as being natural when it's not. Like there's a you have to understand the gap. That's the important knowledge yeah. for the subject to have is to understand. Okay, yeah, these the truth, positions the truth are. The, yeah, these positions are all predicated or they're all i mean all prices are what is it derivative you can externally mm-hmm. you can take that same logic and apply it here everything is held in this sort of differential system i also want to point out the phantasmic aspect of the the masculine sexuation or logic that's being pointed out here right is bard subject in relation to object awe is that yes. lacan's famous um math theme for fantasy is bard subject laws and object a right and it's like a whole matrix and what and how the bard subject interacts with what Lacan will call the agalma in seminar eight, his reading of Plato's Republic. I uh, know, sorry, the symposium is what's very interesting here is that the fantasy of the masculine position toward oneness relies on the thing that it doesn't have, right? That it has to find in the other, right? The object awe and the whole fantasy, the whole phantasmic aspect of the masculine sexuation right as it results back into this phallus right what is the object a that's actually there it's like the phallic thing thing is probably not the right word but phallus is the better word it's like a a collective fantasy in a lot of ways the whole idea behind i think that's what society or the social is is a collective fantasy yeah this this was also good jared that you brought up a galma because i had forgotten that it relates to the symposium where it's it's the term alcibiades uses for the thing he believes Socrates to have under his his robes, right? In the even if Socrates is hideous and ugly, there's something fascinating about him, whether it be as though Socrates possessed the phallic object, the object ah, that causes Alcibiades' uh, desire. That's kind of the interesting paradox that someone like Alcibiades, who's supposed to be this playboy, this this beautiful man, and he's in love with with Socrates, even though Socrates is is disgusting, because there is this belief that deep down Socrates has it, has it, whether it be the palace or this object. So yes, you're right. In the bottom left hand, we have the split subject, the the barred subject of the masculine position who is not, who is oriented towards the object, uh, not towards woman with a capital W, which doesn't exist, but woman insofar as he takes her as as object, uh, which Lacan will say... A phantasmic support, a phantasmic uh, support. Yeah. yeah, a phantasmic support, or even as Lacan will kind of say, what he desires is the kind of bodily jouissance that she may promise him. Yeah, the jouissance of the organ, right? Right. Like, ju- what man doesn't actually want is all of woman or even some sort of enjoyment of woman, but yeah. is only looking for enjoyment of the phallus. This is why I really of like how this is why I like how Zizek talks about the uh, the fetishist, the pervert with a fetish. The worst thing that could happen to him is ha- is to have all of woman or all yeah. of 
all of the person and rather than the the fetish he desires right like that's the way to ruin the uh the fantasy is to have is to have the uh the whole but as lacan says and now we can move to the right side woman is quote unquote not all is patut right is is not whole as think likes it as not whole i think it it, it, i prefer not all um, i do too but i think it i think it depending on the context I think it can. Yeah. I think it can work in both sense because it's just like when Lacan is talking about what in television and elsewhere, you can't say the whole truth. You can't say everything, which is yeah, not the goal of analysis. That's a really good point. Yeah. It's not the goal of analysis for the the patient to say everything, but to say anything that quote unquote comes to mind. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Not to put and... on coming. <laughs> go ahead, Jack. Yeah. Well, this is also a good point too. Just talking about that right side as well, because there is. Mm-hmm. I think there is the position here that Lacan is going to call man-sexual, right? Male-sexual or homosexual with two ends? Yeah, yeah. But like the, when we bring up the feminine myth, right, of Don Juan, I mean, I think it is playing on the whole idea. There are no exes which are not subject, right, to the phallic function. That's definitely on like the feminine side, but I'd say it's like the most masculine of the Mm. feminine positions. Yeah, you know, like it obviously recognizes that there is no such thing as an uncastrated individual which is why don juan is the myth is the feminine myth yeah exactly and Mm -hmm. i but i think like he's pointing out that it still falls into this trap i mean if we take these as also indicative of the discourses right this has not yet reached what lacan is thinking about in terms of analyst discourse clearly this like the the piece of the sexuation that fits most with the unit with the analyst discourse is the not all or not whole and i think there's really strong correlates for the other three positions here in terms of what he understands by discourses. Interesting. So you see the you see the the quadripartite, the fourfold here as mirroring the four discourses in a certain way. Yeah, I think that there's at least some correlation that we could draw okay. that might be helpful for us, right? Obviously the masculine exception lines up very well with the master. Yes. Um, okay, I see that. And yep. yep, and then we have the uh, I guess what we would call the universal masculine position, right, as the, the university's discourse you know, the sort of like searching in vain for the absolute knowledge. Or the searching um, of, searching for the, the one equation that explains all of physics or something yeah, like this. Yeah, exactly. Right. A unifying theory. And then very much so, I think in like the, there are no X's which are not submitted to the phallic function. Mm-hmm. I think kind of it really brings up like the sort of interrogative position that the hysterics discourse really kind of is and why it right. is like an important linchpin right in the quasi-revolutions of the discourses, you know? For Lacan, the hysteric discourse becomes, and later Lacan becomes associated with science insofar as the hysteric is always interrogating the master to produce some sort of knowledge, right? And always finding the master or the S1, the master signifier is falling short of producing that knowledge. But there's Mm -hmm. something about the hysteric discourse that gets off on that interrogation. Yes, absolutely. So in the top um, right, we have a kind of double, we have a kind of negation of the negation, if you will, to speak, yep. you know, Hegelianly. There are no X which is not submitted to the phallic function, which is uh, seemingly, you could think, well, why isn't this a purely affirmative? But that would bring us back to the bottom left, the all yep, X. It would. So yep. there's something about this, this, this double negative that we need to keep in mind when we look at the next part, which is not all X are submitted to the phallic function, which obviously mm-hmm. we can't think in terms of Aristotelian logic, which would not allow for this kind of contradictory 
Yeah, you wouldn't country. negate the the quantifier there. Yeah, it, exactly. Like there, there would be something directly contradictory in classical logic about pairing these two. So the existential and the universal, there's something interesting going on here where in the existential, we have a double negation, but in the universal, there is something like this exception, if you will, this, this mm-hmm. exception to the universal. Yeah, exactly. Which is obviously, yeah, like what Lacan is working toward, you know, with the not all, right? What is this reasons that is not phallic? To that end, I was going to ask if we could discuss Don Juan a bit, just in terms, because I think for one thing, <clears throat> like the question of seduction is very important and like something I've been mulling over the last like month or two. Uh-huh. How does that work for Don Juan? Like, like it makes sense thinking about this series of lovers versus the harem all at once. Uh-huh. Delayed gratification there, but I'm wondering how is Don Juan knowing what women want? I think that's the wrong question to ask. He doesn't pretend to know what women want. What he does is yeah. he acts, does he act as the semblant for the woman or the object ah for the woman and reverse the whole, almost in the Taoist erotics mode, kind of oh, reverse yeah. the, the roles or I don't know, something like that. But I don't know exactly. I, I, do, I would just like to hear maybe, I don't know if you guys have thought through the seduction and Don Juan and like the feminine fantasy and how that relationship to the other and jouissance and so forth because i think you know this could also bridge into another aspect of the seminar that i really enjoyed which was the discussion of courtly love and how that Mm -hmm, deferred gratification is another different type of jouissance but i really want to focus maybe on don juan for a second first i'll give it to jared in just a second but he's he's kind of like He's almost doing a death drive or like a repetition of a series of lovers too. He's just going on this metonymic course of lover to lover, but Uh I don't know how that exactly is. You're doing a reading of, of the bottom right, which is the barred woman, which actually is woman is not barred, but it's la, la femme. Yep. It's the law, the definite article, the, the woman, the, the specific yep. woman, the woman, or or as Not a, a woman, like, we woman. might we might put it woman with a capital W, which is what Nietzsche yeah. calls like the eternal feminine, if you will. That does not exist, and it's from that yeah. position of inexistence of X dash existence, if you will, that yeah. relates to the symbolic symbolic phallus on the left hand side, which would potentially, insofar as it's the feminine myth, be embodied by Don Juan. Does that make sense? I would agree with that. I've actually not stopped to pause and really think a ton on the Don Juan myth. I think this is why it's interesting why I'm thinking like through this is hysterics discourse too, right? There's kind of like the fundamental underlying idea in hysteria, at least as it's outlined in Lacan. This is not it. Or like whatever this whole thing is, because that's kind of like foundational to the whole idea, right? About the hysterics discourse in the first place is it's like interrogative position. And I think what's kind of interesting in that then, though, as you were saying, Taylor, is, well, since there is no the woman or woman, it's a seriality of women, then there's a whole seriality of men, potentially, right? A femme fatale, so to speak. Yeah. Maybe the masculine myth or something like that, which is why we said earlier that woman was one of the names of the father for Lacan. Mm Mm-hmm. The primordial mother who is not only nourishing, but potentially deadly insofar as she eats her children or incorporates them or smothers them or Munchausen's uh, Munchausen like syndrome Roxy, yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. One of the ways that Zizek talks about this is... Uh, or maybe the mother this, coddles, right? Yeah. Right. 
there are these kind of monstrous myths of the, the mother as not just uh, sustaining and nourishing, but incorporating sort of back into the womb, if you will. And in any case, Zizek talks about, and I know this is kind of interest, oddly personal, but he talks about reading de Beauvoir's memoirs and how, you know, she put up with Sartre's philandering and, and his, uh, his, his sleeping around as though he were Don Juan, which is ironic because you look at Sartre, he's mm-hmm. like a five foot little gremlin. But in any case, <laughs> her idea was that she was the exception with a capital E in the series of women, whereas to find out she was just an exception. Each woman in the series of affairs had its own exceptional quality and she was not the exception. She was just one amongst, if not one of the more prominent ones, but she was not somehow an exception to the series of exceptions. I think that that, that's what was crushing for her in a sense, insofar as you know, maybe this gets back to what Coop was talking about in the seductive nature of Don Juan is this feeling of being the exception, kind of like the woman, yeah, being sort of the essence oh, of the eternal feminine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's perhaps what gets us to the last part of the diagram, which is because for Lacan, in an interesting paradoxical way, if the feminine position can have a, a relation to phallic jouissance, that's not the whole story that one of the faces of God, as he puts it, right, or the other Uh jouissance or feminine jouissance proper, which is not related to the phallus or the organ, is not this, as Fink says, on the masculine side, there is this idea of a jouissance that doesn't let us down. But then all, but insofar as we are castrated subjects, all jouissance kind of is not it, as you said earlier, right? It just Mm -hmm. kind of lets us down. There is this idea of, whether it be in mysticism or ecstasy, even if we may not be able to say anything about it, although we we sort of know it as feminine, you know, subjects or in the in the position yeah. of the feminine, we may know it, but we can't say anything about it, or we don't really know anything about it except insofar as we experience it. That's perhaps this relation to S barred other, right? The yeah, because yeah. I mean that's telling us that there's no signifier of the other, right? And in, there's, in that way, I mean, it's like, it's a bit uh, imperceptible, secret. It's like secrecy, you know, to like use some <laughs> delusion Batarian phrases, but the, but form, I think of, there's the something... form of the secret. As yeah, I think, say, there's right? something, yeah. I think there's something important there, though, you know, is like, what does like the not all of the feminine position show that there is no signifier that is representative, right, of feminine jouissance mm-hmm. and as such there is no one-to-one correlate to the phallus which i think is obviously is the whole thing that's bound up in what lacan is talking about is what is kind of like essential to the phallic function that there is a complement to it that there is a real notion of oneness or wholeness if we want to use those two words you know is that for phallus there's also I think I've seen it in a paper somewhere, Omega. They use the letter Omega instead of Phi um, okay, to represent okay. like a correlate that would be the one-to-one correspondence, if you will, to the masculine exception. Yes, but that, makes Lacan, sense. that makes sense. But I think Lacan is making a very important thing here. He didn't negate Phi of X again. He negated the quantifier, right? So it really is the other side of it. And yeah, I think that's just, I think that's an important thing to notice. Like whatever feminine jouissance is, Perhaps it's imperceptible or a form of secrecy 
insofar as masculine injuries once can never can't even talk about it can't even write about it kind of a tricky one i mean lacan's really unclear on the subject so yeah because uh, he says that we can't really speak about it do you want to say maybe a little bit about your and again this put you on the spot mm-hmm. uh, about how your reading of uh julian of norwich if it fits a little bit with this again this notion of feminine jouissance of others jouissance the most I, I get out of it, and obviously he says a lot about it, but I think about it in terms of ecstasy, the ecstasy of certain mystics. And he even points out, mm-hmm. Lacan says, even St. What is it? Is it John Patmos of the Cross? How, how, how are he's called? He says uh-huh. a male, a male can, a, a biological male here, can have this access too, which again yep. makes this point clear that it's not about biology. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. Anyway, go on. Yeah, I guess what I can say most importantly is that at least in like my reading of Julian and what she's seeking to understand by way of, you know, in her text, God's love, is this notion that God was willing to fall as well. What I found like to be quite important about that idea in Julian is that to me, she's very much abandoning what I had called this sort of exceptional view of God if you will, write this sort of unstained, untouchable God, which I, you know, in so many words equate with this idea of like the masculine exception, this sort of being with a capital B from which all other beings flow or in which they have their being, right? But what I found important about Julian is that it's not that she relativizes the notion of sin. I think very much so she points to it being a potential for great damage and hurt whatever we want to use and to me that stuck out in a lot of ways to how we should understand liar or jouissance right in and of itself it's not inherently negative or positive can it be used negatively absolutely we see it all the time right Um, surplus we saw that surplus value yeah yeah Yeah, but can it be something productive absolutely Mm. right and i guess what i found important in that understanding of julian and her and i guess this feminine jouissance is that Feminine jouissance is what, quote, masculine theology wants to call sin, right? Interesting, Uh, right. Because it skirts around what, like, church is often called sin in a lot of ways, skirts around the institutionalized phallic discourse. I I don't know of any better way, right, where, like, Mm -hmm. the only way we can enjoy is by what God says we can enjoy, or we can only enjoy insofar as we follow the law, right, that we stick with the commandments or whatever it might be, or... You know, there's all sorts of things. It's super complex, and I'm being a bit reductionistic and talking about theology. But I think what stuck out to me a lot in Julian's notion of sin is that if we think of sin in the same sort of way that we think of feminine jouissance, we don't really know what it is. But sin itself is not inherently, I mean, Julian says as much, sin is, but hopefully it's fitting. It just is. It is something. And whatever it is, Julian's God is also partaking in it. In her visions, like I mentioned earlier, her vision of Christ, Christ falls just like Adam falls. And that's a pretty important concept, you know, like whoever God is to Julian, it's not the the mutable, untouchable, unmoved mover of things, right? There's something more relational there. And I, maybe that's maybe that's where we should actually like kind of bring ourselves back to in thinking about feminine jouissance, you know, it's like, it's something more relational than whatever phallic jouissance is. <laughs> and maybe that's the wrong word. 
Yeah, I, man, it's, it's hard. a different type you of know, relation, like, right? It's a different type yeah, of relation. It is. It's so insofar because it's a non-relation, right? There you go. Yeah, I mean, insofar as phallic jouissance is a relation to the object cause, which is in itself a kind of reduction or in itself a kind of fetishist position. There's a different type, and as you said, a non-relation to the to the barred other to whether it be one of the faces of God, etc. Right. And I think importantly too that as a non-relation, it is not this idea of like being searching in vain for the source of its being, which I think is like what is really bound up in Lacan's sexuation. And in, yeah, I guess in like, since we're looking at it right now, uh, Mm -hmm. Lacan's ideas of sexuation, the masculine fantasy is the fantasy of wholeness. And it's the fantasy of oneness. And it wants desperately to return back to that thing that it lost to that object that it lost. And you know, like why I think Lacan is attacking the idea of the sexual relation. What is the sexual relation? The fantasy of of wholeness. Yeah, of wholeness of becoming one of, but, of as a he says, pre-established like, harmony. Yeah, that them two can't become one, right? Yeah, because there is not two. The not two is the one already. Because like the two of them already presupposes harmony. And you're like absolutely right. And why he'll also attack the pre-discursive reality. We're not going back and to kind of return to the theological point. It's not about trying to return back to some like Edenic past where right. there was absolute communion or something. Right. And then it was lost by, via a fault. That's not how we should be thinking about it. Right. Um, whatever the enjoyment of Eve eating of that apple, as Genesis puts it, right. Or the fruit that is viewed from a certain perspective as not the right type of jouison. There's like tons of shit to impact in there. And I'm just kind of, I mean, that is uh, interesting. off the cuff right now. That is interesting though, that, the fruit is associated with knowledge and this other jouissance not knowing anything about it or not knowing everything about it, the not being able to articulate it, say it. Well, God doesn't want you to, God wasn't, doesn't want you to access the knowledge of the tree or the, eat of the fruit. The, the fruit of the mm-hmm. knowledge of good and evil, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is interesting that there is posited in Genesis, this as Jared was calling it, and Lacan calls it this pre-discursive reality or, uh-huh. you know, this origin story of the birth of consciousness, however you want to read it. One aspect that I was kind of latching on to actually with regard to this was how after Adam and Eve do consume, uh, eat of the tree, God uh-huh. says that there will be enmity between man and woman and like, what is yes. like, he will bruise your, she will bruise your heel and you will bruise her head or well, that's the serpent that's the serpent though. yeah but there's like the whole idea of like man must must there's some, like i there's that but yeah you're re- like there's enmity now between man and woman right right like so wherever there should be sponsor, the implication there's yeah. gonna be tension yeah right yeah exactly exactly right. there's not gonna be this harmony between man and woman right in the yeah. garden if you're looking at that as a metaphor for like a state of nature or like a pre-castrated animal or whatever that doesn't lack and is full right Maybe just like a speculative point is kind of interesting too. It's like, what is Eve's fault? She goes along with her desire. Yeah, um, yeah. She doesn't. She 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 eats the tree, right? To desire, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, she doesn't. And then, yeah. yeah, she doesn't see right. Yeah, the sort of Antigone aspect of Eve, you know, mm-hmm. tragic character. And I think it's very interesting that Adam's fault is that he follows. It's like it's not his own jouissance that he actually acts on. Ah, uh, he has to act. That's on good. Others, you know? That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And so in a certain sense, though, there, there is a, an inception of the idea from the serpent, but it's desire all the way down, right? It's Jouissance all the yep. way down, as you said earlier. I think that that's, that's good. And I, I, would, I guess I would wonder 
because of the way the Eve myth has been used to ground all sorts of misogyny for millennia, if there is an antagonism inherent in the sexuation diagram itself, right? If we can read mm -hmm. there is no sexual relation in the diagram itself, because from the position of the masculine, there seems to be perhaps this desire to foreclose or to not admit this other's resonance. Is that yeah. maybe oh, reading yeah. too far into it? No, I, I think that's great, right? This whole, it must be suppressed at all costs. Why mm. I think is pretty interesting back into the master's discourse and mm. Lacan's play on Maitva, right? Yeah. My being is, uh, yeah. I made a note about it in the notes. I was reading through Mark Fisher's Post-Capitalist Desire and he's referencing Marcuse and mm -hmm. he kind of, he talks about how for him, Marcuse is this, is commenting a lot on like this sort of like necessity of the, how the way things are. I'm kind of butchering it, but I kind of made this note, you know, what is the power of the master's discourse is that it hammers home like the necessity that it's the only enjoyment as reactionary it has to fight it at all costs yes. against it you know enjoyment you know, has like to, why... enjoyment has to be it has to be repeated yes yeah yeah the compulsion yeah. Right. to repeat the compulsion to repeat dissatisfaction is uh -huh. what the that's more like capitalist discourse i think that's inherently related to the the master's discourse. well yeah yeah yeah, with, yeah. With, yeah. i mean but i would say and, and, and you're right coop i mean i, I would just to add on to this, the master doesn't care to know anything about what the slave produces in the field of knowledge. All yep. the master wants is to enjoy right. the surplus, the fruits, the, the benefits. Exactly. So, so in the same sense, there is from if there is this inherent link on the masculine side or, or phallic jouissance, it's just about getting enjoyment. It's not about knowing anything and doesn't want to know anything about the other jouissance. Whereas from the other jouissance side, the feminine position it's not that they it's not the inherent unknowability or ineffability is more imminent to that position rather than something imposed or something uh -huh. derivative yeah because it feels like the abyss to quote jordan peterson it's like the chaos dragon <laughs> right the chaos, the chaos right? yeah it's funny because it's kind of like that uh it's the reverse of from dune they say that you know there's a place that's terrifying to women that they can't look it's the reverse it's like there's a place that's terrifying for men to look and it's feminine yeah. jouissance mm -hmm. because it's a threat yeah. somehow i i don't know exactly well, that, yeah it's a so threat like to like our enjoyment as the masculine position or it's something. also something that, yeah it there's something from like the masculine position that it's like grotesque Lacan makes that point in Seminar 7 when he's talking about the Troubadours. And mm -hmm. he makes kind of like, he's quoting the Troubadours, and I can't remember which one in particular, but one of the courtly love ballads, like essentially that he wrote, talks about what is the body of the woman, really? This disgusting sort of thing underneath the clothes, the agalma of, yeah. you know, the actual agalma of the, of the woman is something too grotesque for the man to das actually thing. behold. Right. And uh, it's why, the thing, yeah. And why, like, phallic treasons can only take a part. It only wants to enjoy the part. Exactly. I mean, the whole of it is grotesque. Yeah. I, I think Bruce Fink talked about this a little bit with phallic jouissance, where there is, insofar as we're talking about the barred subject, split subject, or we could call it the castrated subject, insofar as we approach the object of desire, there is this threat. So, again, it's kind of like disavowal, where, you know, it has to be. Or like the, uh, the the sort of limits of capitalism where you approach the limits, but you've got to exercise them, ward them off and push them back off. It's kind of like that. And I think mm -hmm. that's potentially why from the masculine position, from the phallic jouissance side, 
if zoisance can be reduced only to the organ, like mm-hmm. and, and ward off or suppress feminine zoisance, then we kind of have, in a sense, to bring it back to like Freud's three essays on sexuality, uh-huh. that's adult genital sexual relations, which wards off perversion and is about copulation, is about sexual reproduction. There is a yes. reduction of um mature genitality yeah yeah mature genitality and so i think that that we we're still again this shit's still with us in politics where in a certain sense warding off this other access to jouissance or this other face of god everything has to be reduced to genital copulation otherwise otherwise it's a threat to traditional notions of what the purpose of sex is. And that's, and that's the funny thing for me where this is all about if jouissance, as Lacan says, is useless. It's all about how to force jouissance into productive channels. Not the productivity you were talking about earlier, Jared, with, with new masters. Not like the machine, yeah, or like not in the machine extent, as I was kind of thinking about too. Yes, but the reproductive use of jouissance for pregnancy, for conception, etc., and that we're still dealing with that, perhaps even more um, fervent. Well, I mean, than I ever. mean, think about how rooted it is in like people talking about the abolishing of the family currently, right? I'm sure you saw some of those tweets a few like about a month ago. The absolute repugnant stance that this sort of phallic position takes at the very notion of abolish the family, right? I mean, we could call the family easily like a, a reified form of phallic frisance, you know? Right. And uh, the very threat that it poses to that frisance, to abolish it. To, to right? abolish it, uh, yeah. At all costs, how will it be defended, you know? And I think you're right. It's all over our politics. It's all over. I mean, we see it on the news all the time or see it on Reddit or whatever it might be. It's alive and well. It hasn't gone away. I guess a way to maybe bring this, to start to wrap this up. And yeah, I know we could keep talking I suppose one of the things that Lacan says, and maybe this is a good way to, to wrap and to yeah. thinking is Lacan says that love is the sign that one is changing discourses. I think about this in terms of one of Coop's favorite memes, which is Lacan, he's talking to a conference, you see his face and the subtitle, the caption says, transference is love. And uh-huh. I think about how in the analytic discourse we talked about earlier, there is this attempt to mobilize transference in all its forms, whether it be negative or positive, but Mm -hmm. take that as a way in which the Archimedean lever of love to change discourses, if you will. And maybe that's Mm -hmm. a good way to read what the analytic position or the analytic discourse is attempting to do insofar as what is being produced are these new master signifiers in order to sort of form these knots, change the subject's discourse, etc. New forms of, of sociality, right? Mm-hmm. Like a new, a new social bond. A, I mean, I think this is what draws me so much as I'm starting to get into reading like Deleuze and Guattari, the collective of enunciation, the ideas behind becoming, right? Abandon the static, <laughs> abandon the arborized, the arborescent phallic pole that asks all things to gravitate toward it, right? Become like a rhizome, go wild, find new ways to link up, find new bonds. There's a different thing. There's a different way possible. I guess there's one way to say that. Say that. I like it. And I, when I was reading Lacan, I was thinking about how if for Deleuze and Guattari, the rhizomatic is the, we're done with trees, et cetera, blah, 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 you know, against the arborescent with Lacan, I liked how it's 
question problematize the spherical and the circular right because the sphere is that yeah. fantasy of wholeness of oneness yep. of aristophanes myth in the symposium right of the whole being that was cloven by zeus etc yep. this questioning of sphericality as the symbolic fantasy of there being a sexual relationship right there being yep. a pre a pre-discursive reality that's harmoniously suited. I think that what's so interesting when he's questioning whether the Copernican revolution was all that revolutionary insofar as it merely simplified the number of epicycles, the number <laughs> of circles we needed, it's really Kepler who throws things out of joint by suggesting the ellipse as the proper way of thinking gravitational forces. And to bring it back also to Julian Norwich, what it's, uh, it's Newton who in um, calculating gravity, who suggests everything falls, right? Falls, falls, and yeah, things, yeah, things are falling. It's good. I think it's a wonder that besides what homosexuality, we didn't really talk about all the different puns in Lacan. But the last thing I would say is one of the things I enjoy about Lacan so much, and that word is loaded again, right? Every time I say enjoy now, I get get a little uh, skeptical. But, you know, it's the fact of trying to take together Lacan's formalization with the Mathemes and Mm -hmm. Lacan's linguistics of the the punning, taking them as maybe two sides of the same coin, because I think that if the Mathemes are meant to train analysts, I think the puns are too, because what are we dealing with in analysis, if not the slips of the tongue? Yeah, the uh, parapraxies. The parapraxies. And I think the puns are maybe that even if they're they're consciously elaborated, I think that they are a product of how the unconscious is nodding and tying things together, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, all these disparate elements, right, that can actually be joined together. Um yeah, is is really interesting. Yeah, the, that that idea like of some nodding. type of body without organs. Well, yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Yes. That's good. That's the other thing. If phallic jouissance is the jouissance of the organ, that's that gives a new meaning to, to perhaps <laughs> body without organs, right? Because yep. as, as, I've, as I've told Coop, body without organs awesome. for me yep. is kind of a nonsense phrase insofar yeah. as it says its own sense and can be elaborated uh-huh. in many right. ways. Lacan yep. himself talks about his own writing, his puns, and the mathemes as, as being infinitely able to be elaborated in, in disparate yep. ways. And so I think that that's kind of the same thing that, you know, in analysis, we have to sort of be aware of in the gaps, in the parapraxies, in the slips, there's an infinite number of ways to elaborate them and read them. The effects to be drawn from them are kind of what matters rather than what any one thing in the last instance means. Not merely a matter of interpreting the right meaning or something. Exactly. Coop or Jared, do we, well, well, Jared, I guess. I have something interesting if Coop, you say it, and then time. and then we can allow. Of course, we do, and then we can allow Jared to maybe talk about what he's working on or anything to plug. But yeah, Coop, I just wanted to delve into a bit this this concept of courtly love because it I think it's such a rich con- vehicle for exploring all of really everything that we've discussed today. Because I feel like there's something with this idea of the logic of the death drive and courtly love because it's like the whole idea behind courtly love is is not to consummate the relationship. So mm-hmm. it's the deferring of jouissance, the indefinite deferment of jouissance 
So in one way, like this feels like it could perhaps lend itself towards this other notion of jouissance that's not driven by the phallic. But I also wonder how that works with, again, how that sort of still fits within the logic of the drive and like sort of orbiting the loved object. That's kind of feels what courtly love seems to me to be. Another aspect that I think is interesting is the lady in waiting or what have you would perhaps give the knight a favor of hers to wear Mm -hmm. in battle or perhaps in a joust, which I think can be read in a couple of different ways. Like it can in one way be read as the symbolic exchange of, of obviously love can't be quantified. Desire can't be quantified by a strict measure the same way that signifiers fail, right? Mm -hmm. But this is a sort of acknowledgement. That's the beauty, I think, of symbolic exchange is that it acknowledges the contingency of these positions, I think, perhaps. Now, on the reverse side, you could almost see this as a fetish, too, because she only gives a part of herself to the knight, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, then the favor becomes this fetishized little object, like the little A. So, I don't know. These are just some thoughts that I was working through with relative to this that I thought were interesting. I don't know if I know there's not really a question. I guess just to give that extra comment there, too, you know, is the courtly love thing is really interested with interesting with the idea of the lady in waiting, right? And as I kind of mentioned earlier with the <laughs> troubadours, really in reality, all that what what is it that they want? They only want like a piece. There is a very fetishist aspect to courtly love, as you uh, pointed out there, Coop, because like when the man actually does have the whole woman, it's incredibly grotesque, sort so of abject. That's the terrifying you know? aspect. Uh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And I don't know. I think it also kind of highlights too some of these aspects that what is at the center of male fantasy, right? Is the one who's actually truly virile. Yeah. The woman. Like that's mm-hmm. very essential, you know, and at least in the is the actual virile position is not the phallic one. Right. So it'd be fun to talk about Portly Love more sometimes too. I really want to like review some of Seminar Seven because he spends a lot of time working through Portly Love poetry. Interesting. Um, okay. One of my favorite, even though this is kind of shitty, is uh, Thomas Sir Thomas Wyatt, Whoso List to Hunt. But I think uh-huh. it goes to this because the there's like a deer in the forest and it wears a little, some type of like, I don't know if it's like a amulet or something that says some Latin phrase about it's Caesar's own or something like that. Uh-huh. But we can wrap up, I think. My, um, don't, yeah, yeah, don't, yeah. Don't exactly. touch. Yeah. Do you have anything to plug or do you want to mention your current sort of research project in my own free time i've been uh, i've been really delving deep into some more like to losing guitari i've kind of been perseverating on this idea that i feel pretty excited about kind of like a critique of the idea of blindness in philosophy i work for a blind school currently okay. um, i think a lot about the way that blindness is talked about as a sort of like negative form of being if you will you know or at least like a a detriment to being right a sort of minus to it or whatever. So I've been thinking a lot through what would it mean to talk about a becoming blind? You know, Mm. what is it about living as someone with blindness that has an aspect about becoming right? Not to become actually blind, but I'm kind of like working through those sorts of ideas a little bit more outside of that. I mean, I guess what I really do projects-wise is a lot of music outside of reading philosophy and things like that. Delve a lot into music. So that's kind of like my big passion outside of all of this uh, i have music up on Bandcamp. people can find that there send me your links for sure and i'll post those i will yep uh, and, i'll put those in the uh chat right now 
And Jared, I, I added a link. This is to Sick One, Gays and Voices, Love Objects. Um, okay. Zupanchich has an essay about optics, blindness, and... Oh, great. And so I know that one page is missing from her essay, which is kind of fucking annoying because I can't find another copy, but it's still a good read. It's one of her really early works, but it's on Descartes and these experiments on optics and vision and on blindness. So, you know, look, yeah, look I'll at definitely that. give it a check. And we'll add, and Coop will add uh, these to the show notes. Um, okay. But, you know, we'll let you go. Uh, I, I appreciate you coming on and talking to us about Seminar 20. Yeah. As always, we only scratched the surface. But I do think we talked about some of the big things. And it was really nice to delve into the sexuation diagram because I thought that that, that helped, helped us to give, get a handle on uh, these discussions. And I, I, really thought it was, I really thought it was fruitful and, and interesting. Agreed. Yeah, I had a blast. Thanks for having me on. Uh, talk some more in the future. We're going to stay on just for a moment and talk about uh, good. our next work, but this should be out uh, next weekend. And again, Sweet. Jared, I appreciate you and have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Coop. Thanks again, Jared. This will wrap yep. up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious. The whole state of things, a pure violence without object This is the typical violence of information. It's violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.